Hey, Rizzo here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Scott McNamara from the University of New Hampshire to discuss the article, Physical Education Podcasts, A Thriving Community of Practice or a One-Way Mode of Communication. Um, the article was published recently in Physical Education and Sport Pedagogy. As always, I'll put the link to the article in the show notes. Scott, from one podcaster to another, welcome to the podcast and thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on uh, the podcast. And uh, yes, it's nice. I, I have the podcast called What's New in Adaptive Physical Education. You know, smash that subscribe button, right? Yes. And uh, and uh, it's nice to be on the other uh, end of, uh, you know, the podcast seat. Yeah. And you've had a podcast for, for quite a while. And we've done like a crossover episode, like, I don't know, 2019 or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, I think I started it 2016 is when I started it. And, and honestly, we can talk about that maybe as we talk about this paper, because that was definitely a driver. Um, you know, I, I mean, just getting into this paper, I, like the reason of why I wanted to look into this was, uh, and you probably have seen this too, but I've seen like this really unique world around podcasters and podcasting and uh, developed because I started in 2016 and I started really naively just like kind of like i was itunes on itunes looking up podcasts around pe and then i looked up adapted physical education i saw nothing and i was like oh i will try that and um you know if you listen to my first few episodes the audio is horrible mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and probably i'm horrible um you know and honestly i feel like i've started to get the hang of it the last year or two because yep. i've been doing it for six years or so but in addition to that um that naive sense of why did I want to do it? And then there's this like, and you, you, you know, again, you can jump in on these conversations too, because you probably have seen similar things. Um, but I also found that there was uh, clout that was provided with this, with this position that I gave myself. I found that there were people that actually listened. I was shocked when I started having more than 10 people like, even 10 people. I mean, you, our numbers are probably not They're What I've noticed with podcast numbers, not great thing to kind of, they're not a super uh, reliable source. Cause you know, did they actually listen? Mm-hmm. Do they click it for two seconds? But um, people started coming up to me and talking, talking to me about my podcast at conferences. Um, and my network started expanding and all these things started happening uh, from the podcast. And it was, Um, it was interesting. I don't want to say that we're celebrities or something like that, but there was a a certain power influence that I think we were provided. And that, it it really drove me to think about, okay, what is this podcast, PE podcast? And honestly, your podcast comes up in conversation all the time with my peers in academia or even teachers and students. And it, it was, um, I think there is a really interesting phenomena occurring around podcasts in our field. I actually also think that when I talk to people in exercise physiology or something, I think the same thing's happening there. Yeah. Yet we've done very little to kind of think about um, how the meat, in the research world at least, we, we've done very little about um, how is the meat, uh, you know, created, like what, what's happening in the meat factory and also, what is the community that, that's being developed around us, and why is it being developed? And you know, and this is to me this this study I did was a very much a um, uh, you know it's it's the very beginning, the tip of the iceberg on this topic. And again, not just in our field, but in the wider educational podcast community, which is the term I've been using mm-hmm. around it. So, what do we know? Like, what does research say? Are they like, what are the benefits of using podcasts educationally, let's say, in, in university classes? Has there been much research on that? Well, yes and no. I would actually say in the university space, there's probably, that's where they, most of the research has been in college courses. We don't, um, there, there's been, that, that's where the research has really been. There is discrepancies, though, a lot of them in what is a podcast and uh, then different forms of it. Right. And, and, and then again, what are the benefits of those different forms? So has there been? Yes. Um, students have often said that they enjoy rewinding and re-listening to things. 
Um, students have said that it's often more engaging than reading a textbook or article. I've even done some papers and, and read papers as well, where basically we look at self-efficacy and knowledge, and often it's higher in a podcast than in uh, a practitioner article or something like that that's on the same topic. Um, however, again, if you really get into the nitty-gritty of it, there's a, not always a lot of substance in how people are writing up what the podcast is. Mm-hmm. Your podcast format's a lot different than my podcast. Yeah. Sometimes the podcast and the research is instructor developed. Sometimes it's this thing I call the open access podcast, where it's this one that, you know, someone could throw a Joe Rogan podcast thing, which I think we can both as podcast creators say maybe doesn't have the strongest uh, reliability always, right? Mm-hmm. Um, compared to one where we're interviewing experts uh, and so on and so forth. And those could still be under that same category. So, and then again, there's format panels. Uh, there's ones where it's a narrative, uh, personal narrative, there's interviews. We don't, um, so, so this term, especially when we put it into a research realm, is really, uh, has not really been fine-tuned at all, which obviously kind of hurts the research aspects of it and our ability to generalize and find it. Yeah, and you alluded to this in the paper in our, earlier in our conversation about how colleagues will talk to you about podcasts or the content in these podcasts. And so um, you talked about developing communities of practice. So has that happened and how can that happen in in the field of physical education with podcasts? Sure. So, so first off, you know, what is a community of practice, right? And so, uh, you know, the, the community of practice is kind of wide learning, situated learning framework where we think that we learn better when we're engaged in the community of practice. And that includes having a shared repertoire, having shared experiences, shared language, um, and, and, and often a similar group of professionals, right? So that's, you know, we, we want some of those things to be able to kind of relate to each other, you know, have shared language. I'm sure we've all experienced that in some way, somehow. Uh, and then the idea is what is a, what is a strong, so the community of learning um, learners is a, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a framework that's been utilized a lot in different types of research rooms. But then the other, there's questions around it in the research, and I kind of got, I like doing this paper quite a bit because I really dived into it. That's how I kind of, I frame the research questions, how I frame the interview questions, how I analyze the information to using the community of learners uh, framework. Well, it's not just does it exist, but does it exist in a, is it efficient? Is it a strong one? Oftentimes, they're, they're, you know, every PLC that's out there is technically a community of uh, learners, but, you know, um, oftentimes it's, you have some type of mentor that's kind of leading it, leading the pack a little bit, but then there's also some type of, there is, there is, uh, even though you have a mentor, maybe the power dynamics are kind of lessened under that. So that's kind of how I, you know, yes, is there a community of learners? Absolutely. But there almost seem to be two levels of community learners that were happening. There's, or community of practice, sorry. Um, there's the listener and the podcast host, right? There's, there's this large community happening where we find that the listeners are engaging. Um, they might talk to a few people about it, but often, and, and this came up with the host too when I, I interviewed them. That's why I interviewed interviewed both hosts and listeners um, about in the PE uh, realm about their experiences and, and such and perception. And what we found though was that the host kind of felt that, um, and, and the listeners that, although yes, they engaged, the host often said things like, I see a lot of views on my whatever, however they're kind of categorizing it, yet. Uh, you know, every post I do on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, I might get one or two comments or an mm-hmm. email here and there, but often, uh, you know, it's like putting it out in the void and knowing somehow that the content's being taken. And often the listeners, some of them describe listening with peers, um, but often the listening is happening in, in isolation, driving or, or exercising. And they might have random conversations, but often, again, it's this, almost this thing that they're doing for 
self-development um, or, or just to kind of get, you know, their mind off things or to relate to people, right? Where the host, so, so that's this larger community um, a, a practice that's occurring, right? Where there's, there's these podcast creators, you know, providing information and, and, and the guests, there was people that were guests as well as listeners. And they often felt a lot more in, in, enveloped or in that community of practice as well. I found though that there was almost another community of practice that was occurring between the hosts, including mm-hmm. you and I, right? The hosts seem to be talking to each other quite a bit. They seem to be communicating. They seem to be building networks with one another, and they seem to have a much more, um, a much more purposeful or uh, they're more conscious of their or are deliberate about their community practice. And they have a, their own community practice where they're talking about recording, they're talking about the audio, they're talking about dissemination and, and all the kind of nitty gritty along with like, and then from that, all this networking that's occurring kind of by a byproduct from it, right? And yeah. again, we're, we're in the same community of practice that I'm talking about. And it's really only maybe, maybe a dozen people yeah. that we're in this community of practice with. Yeah, and I, and I, Realized that too when I was just getting started. I reached out to people to ask about best practices or like, how are you supposed to do this? And and I, what I saw when I was talking to my colleagues about creating this was that there wasn't necessarily solid evidence based research being discussed regularly. Like yes, like your podcast talks a lot about APE, and you've you've had a ton of researchers on there but it wasn't about general physical education. And then the general physical education ones, which are really good, they're really practical for practitioners. They have other K to 12 PE teachers on, talked about a certain thing. So I, I, when you talked about the validity, what's reliable, you know, I was able to bring in the researcher who has published a peer reviewed research paper and that has already gotten the validity based on a peer review. And then we can have a conversation about. So it's nothing like not reaching out to grab things that might be like untested or completely like out of left field, you know. So um, but in that beginning part, I reach out to a bunch of people like, where are you publishing your podcast? How do you do it? What, what do you record with? Like even before we started recording, like I showed you my recorder. I'm like, this is what I'm doing now. And, and I think, you know, I have had two colleagues who have started podcasts since, and I, I took a very long time learning how to do it. And I wrote down all these notes on how to set it up and what to do. And I just forward that, that over to people because I feel like that I don't want them to struggle through the 40 hours. It took me to figure out how to, you know, analyze or like edit audio and that kind of stuff so um but i know a couple people uh, oscar nunez enriquez from uh chihuahua university in mexico like he started a spanish language physical activity and sports pe podcast and he's got probably in the last couple months like 10 15 episodes already that are up and running that nobody in the spanish you know like spanish language research is doing anything in the podcast field so he is a person that that started it so i think i think you're right on that there are like these circles of communities of practice within podcasts there's like the creator podcast people then there's the people who are listening to it and maybe communicating up to and i say up because you've talked about this in your paper and we'll get to that but like the one-way communication versus the two-way communication and then the you know people who are listening talking with it like about the topics um so I, i'm just curious just to kind of give everybody an overview can you just explain what you did in the study and i know we you kind of alluded to interviewing people but what was like the structure of the study sure so so um what we did is we used the community of practice framework learning uh framework to kind of guide our research questions or, or and we used, um, we did uh, interviews with 
15 participants um, that were either PE podcast creators or PE podcast listeners. And we, uh, we, we did those interviews by just sending out, using kind of our networks that we had, we would interview, and the podcast creators are very easy to find because they're, mm-hmm. they're out there. And I found that the podcast creators uh, were very willing to be um, you know, interviewed and such. I think they were somewhat excited to be interviewed about this topic that they're passionate about. Um, and yeah, we use the uh, interpretive etymological analysis approach to uh, guide this investigation as well. And yeah, we had, and what we also, uh, and one thing I did do is that I knew that the PE podcast listener was a listener of my podcast. I worked collaboratively, I should say, <laughs> from, uh, I had two other colleagues that I should have already mentioned on here. Um, and I have from York University in Toronto, Canada, I had Victoria Larcoa, Larcoa and Rebecca Bassett Gunter. And both of them were, uh, they also helped me out. And Victoria, who is just finishing her PhD at York University, would, we would do some of the interviews together as well as she interviewed anybody that I knew that there might be a conflict of interest where they, they listen to my podcast and such which we also asked them in the surveys um, what podcast they listened to. And if my podcast came up, I would remove myself from the interview process so that I wouldn't be um, kind of a conflict of interest there. Obviously, there's always going to be some power dynamics that happen in qualitative research, but we try to limit it to some degree. Um, and yeah, so I mean, that's really, you know, in, in a nutshell, what we did as far as the methods go. And we found, uh, you know, we constructed three different themes around it, which were enhancing or replacing professional development experiences, uh, degrees of community around physical education podcasts, and then kind of this general attractive features of podcasts and areas of improvement where kind of the pros and cons that the, that, that the participants cited as far as what we they thought was good and bad about podcasts yeah. that were being created. So how did listening and creating the podcasts help the participants, whether they were, you know, creators or listeners in their professional development journey? I mean, often that was, I mean, there was a lot of citing of that, that when it was a, either a replacement for professional development, it was a way for them to stay engaged between big conferences. Uh, and that was really cited often that, that it was a big thing for them to stay engaged and, and a way for them to get new knowledge. There were uh, a lot of people too that say not just the knowledge and sometimes they even said the knowledge was somewhat surface level. Um, not always. These are, you know, every individual kind of had a different experiences with the knowledge aspect. But a lot of them also cited things like having that the podcast allow them to gain new perspectives towards topics, which I found to be interesting. Um, so it wasn't just that, okay, there's new knowledge being provided to them, but that there's a new perspective. And that because sometimes we're more conversational, it was a lot more engaging and that they would kind of get more, you know, interested in it and sometimes do more research on their own and such mm-hmm. on it. So it wasn't just strictly a, you know, a, a grab and take rather. It might have provided some different, you know, experiences and, and um, perspectives. And that was, those things were talked about at length. Um, and, and yeah, and so, and, and there was a lot of sites about, uh, you know, we did this, we, we collected this data, I think, last winter so that was uh 2021-ish uh the winter of i think mm-hmm. somewhere like january to march is when we grabbed this yeah. data um and with that we're in 2021 the, the you know still covid yeah. was was raining uh our life um you know and it, obviously it still is to some extent but uh, that, you know, and so a lot of the participants also cited how nice they were with COVID. Uh, some of them explained that they started listening to them because of COVID too, because their conferences were canceled and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, and, and people also said using them to keep abreast of, of the new topics, the new conversation, um, to be there. We asked those same professional development questions to the hosts. I should also mention that we did have slightly different interview guides for the host versus the listeners. 
Um, but the host explained similarly that they often got a major benefit from sitting across from guests that they would have that had a ton of expertise in something. Mm -hmm. They almost got their own professional development you know, on a monthly basis or how often they were doing their podcast. And that they engage with this, you know, if there was an article that, the, that their expert panelists or whatever had, they would read it and they would have questions written about it. And that engaging in that was like this super kind of in-depth kind of thing they were doing. And the other benefit that they cited was networking. Right. Uh, the networking scene, it, like that was very prominent and wasn't just between podcasters, but I'm sure, Risto, you know, we, you know, I remember the PhD student I had, he's a big guy in my world, is Dale Ulrich um, on my uh, podcast. He created the TGMB. He was on my like maybe first year and I'm a second year PhD student and I have an hour long conversation with the creator of, you know, one of the most used assessments and I got to pick his brain. I have seen Dale at conferences and such, and Dale says, hey, Scott, how are you now? You know? So, I mean, that, you know, as, again, as a second, third year, I didn't realize that I was doing that when it was happening, but those, I think those were, are seen throughout the podcast host community. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, that's where I started was like two years, three years before I went up for tenure. And my like academic networking world just exploded of, you know, and it's not like for me, it's not my work that I'm sharing. I'm just the, like the person who asked the questions to share, like, like right now, I'm asking you to share your work. But as a reflection of that, people have seen like my face or know my voice or when they see me at conferences, they kind of know me instead of what like a normal like academic journey would have been for me, which would be publishing a few papers here and there and hoping that people kind of maybe see it. Um, so, and I know that one of the other things that you talked about um, was a lot of elementary PE teachers who are an N of one at a school and they have the problem of, they don't have a professional colleague at work to talk about PE stuff and the podcast was able to provide them like, not necessarily a dialogue, which we'll talk about later, but as a professional development tool to stay connected to the field. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about like the motivation of the creators or the listeners to listen, like what was the motivation for them other than the networking? Was there like an intrinsic need? Like you talked about, there wasn't something out there, so I created it. Or for me, there wasn't something out there about research specifically that only talked about research, so I created it. I, I think the motivation, you know, that was something that we were also interested in this broad, you know, broad research study we did. It seemed to me that a lot of the, you know, when people did talk about their motivation to create something, it was trying to find something that wasn't there already. So like a research-based one um, or, or, but I think there was kind of um, a, a kind of a sense of stumbling into it from the host, um, you know, trying something, being interested in podcasts in general. Um, I, and, and yes, I mean, a lot of them express senses of responsibility or that they want to have a high quality, you know, experience. And honestly, networking was not, that came across, several times is not a motivation to do it initially. Mm -hmm. However, a byproduct from it. Um, the motivations from, you know, and as I already kind of said, and the motivations often from the listeners was professional development wise or self-development or hearing different experiences, staying engaged. I mean, those, those motivations and the professional development experience they have were, you know, very intertwined. That was really um, the motivation to get started. And, and often, you know, they would, there was a few that said that, you know, a friend or a colleague or a college course uh, would introduce them to the podcast. Um, but oftentimes, just as well, you know, it seemed that they were on iTunes and they kind of stumbled upon it just like I did, where you just, hey, I wonder if there's anything on here. Mm -hmm. So the motivation to listen, I think, is just, I think there still needs to be a lot more research on that. But I think it's, um, you know, I think there's this professional development kind of idea of it right now. So what about the validity? Let's get back to that. Like, what were the issues that Absolutely. kind of pushed people away or brought them towards that? And 
you know, how did so, validity play in? As I was talking about the networking and, and the podcast host kind of thing, I want to get into this deeper thing about it. And I'm not saying that just to say, you know, oh, wow, how lucky you and I are to be podcast hosts. Um, I think there is this kind of elephant in the room aspect of it, too, is we are self-anointed. Mm-hmm. And I actually somewhat believe that, or I have a theory that it might not be the, the validity or the strength of our podcast always. Rather, it might be that we were just here first. Yeah, um, absolutely. Be, um, because I don't know if mine's the best. I don't know if yours is the best, I, but we've been around. We're now like we're, we have, we have clout, right? Mm-hmm. That's built. And is there's something good about that. There's something nice. Um, about that and having familiar voices and relationships. That's another thing people express is relationships they felt with the host, um, which they felt, and, and that was actually another piece of getting to the validity piece. And this, is, this has been cited in the other literature on podcasts. People often feel a level of trustworthiness from a podcast host that they don't always feel in other mediums. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because we kind of, as um, you know, people, there was a, another paper that I cannot remember the name of uh, from a few years ago where they talk about uh, this, this authenticity. Oh, I remember what it was. Um, it's the WTF podcast with Mark Marin. Somebody mm-hmm. did a content analysis of it a few years ago, uh, which is a comedy podcast. And they said, what, you know, what are the things that draw people into it? And it was authenticness. It was the authenticity of the podcast creator. It was the trustworthiness of the podcast creator. And people felt like they developed a relationship with it. And I think we're all doing that as hosts to some degree anyway. We're letting them we develop a relationship with us that is unique. And hours and hours of our time and our personalities are just kind of coming through one way or another. Well, because of that, they feel like listeners feel like they, they know us. And this, this goes for influencers too. And again, there is some literature on this. Although I think it's speculative right now because we haven't not in depth enough. The validity of the information is a question of the podcast creators and the guests kind of due diligence to make it quality. However, the listeners often have a relationship with the podcast host and are more likely to believe that information, or at least there's research to show it. And it was something that came up in the interviews as well. Um, that they're more likely to kind of take that information that you are providing as a higher level or higher quality level than they might say from uh, just reading something on Twitter mm-hmm. or, um, you know, a, a YouTube video from somebody that they don't know. I, you know, so our, so the word of that, because of the relationship that's de- developed, is often higher. However, that doesn't actually speak. So people are putting validity on the topics or the content that we're creating because of that relationship. Because, and, and, and again, there is something to that, right? We hopefully have developed um, a level of trustworthiness from not lying to our, our listeners or bringing sh- shitty, you know, guests on. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had a guest on a few times where people yelled at me afterwards and I, and I re I kind of re oriented myself after that. Cause I said, Hey, maybe I need to be a little bit more, um, thoughtful yeah. in some of this, right? Well, and I, and I think that like my, my first set of podcasts that I started to listen to was Joe Rogan. And I consumed a ton of his podcasts because I found the guests super interesting and you could like, it, it's authentic. And to me, it was giving me a lot of information that I didn't have time to read up on. It was just some like, uh, adjacent field or something that I was interested in and when I stopped listening to him was like probably a year before the whole like validity thing with COVID stuff that he had blew up was I mean they were talking about MMA and they were talking about a person that I knew and the person on the podcast said completely like silly things like like the weight class that they were fighting at was like 30 pounds heavier and the weight where they were training was in Los Angeles instead of here in DC. And I'm like, 
whoa, that's not right. That, and But nobody called it out. Nobody said anything. The conversation just went on and it planted the seed of doubt in my head. And I was like, wait, what else have I been listening to passively and taking it as truth because I'm not fact checking it. And I think that there's a difference between when an NPR does a podcast or New York Times does a podcast or the Washington Post does a podcast. Those are um, like very specifically researched. They have fact checkers. And when you hear the list of people who produce those podcasts, the list is like a minute and 30 seconds long of names, which is like, for me, it's me and then my doctoral student who helps out uh, doing the um, doing the like the prep work. But I think that the validity is there is completely different in, in other podcasts. When you just listen to it, you and you're right. I did put a lot of like strength on this is who I trust. I trust Joe Rogan in this situation to like, why would he lie? And he never probably did, but then the guests he has on do. And I, have, I haven't gotten to that point because I've always talked about a research paper, but then the conversation does go off track a little bit and somebody might say something incorrectly about another person's research. And I've had that situation, not, not in like an aggressive way, but also like, um, you should have asked these follow-up questions because that's not what my work is about. And I'm like, okay, let's have you on and have a rebuttal. And like, we can kind of navigate it that way. But I think that the, you know, the way the validity that we put on into, um, into podcasters is, can be scary. Like you could legitimately have a PE podcast and you could have some PE teacher who's been you know, doing this for 30 years, come in and speak their opinion on a topic that is completely wrong. It goes out, it's listened to by 300 people, some of them teachers of the year, and they go, oh, maybe I should change and start doing this, which is against best practices. And so I think that that's, that's a scary thing for sure in podcasts, especially when it's educational podcasts, not like a comedy riffing you just hang out and listen to for entertainment but a lot of these are well, i would say arguably all of the pe podcasts are in some way professional development they're linking to what people are doing in classrooms and and that's that's tough because you're right i i think the reason why my podcast is listened to by as many people as it is is strictly because I was here doing the research podcast. I started in 2018, 2019, and the absolute peak that I've ever hit in downloads is October, 2020, which every university was pretty much online and instructors were scrambling how to figure out how to do professional development or how to assign readings in different ways. And it picked up there and it's kind of drifted off down, but it's now, now consistent. Absolutely. No. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of what you're saying, I think is, is very true. And, and those things about, you know, having that relationship with, with a podcast creator and, and trusting them, I think is, it's everything to the, like to actually doing it. And I've had the same experience as you where like, you know, all of a sudden you're listening to podcasts and they say something incorrect and you're like, whoa. And then you realize I've been listening to this for a year yes. and never questioning yeah. anything. Um, and, and, you know, I, I make this comparison in the paper a little bit and, and, you know, I, I will say a little bit of the paper, like I, I love this topic. I'm very, like, I, I'm not afraid to say I'm proud of this, this paper because I don't, I look at this paper as foundational to our field of PE and it's so important right now. I really do. And I, but I also think that it's, this is not being talked about in every other field. This is not unique to PE where we have niche, like kind of um, profession specific areas and we're not talking about it. And, and the thing that I also want to talk about is, is the power that we have, right? So the power that you and I have, and again, self-anointed, um, you know, and, and I think there's something to that as well, but we, we have self-anointed ourselves to say, Hey, I deserve to be heard. 
I am now this, I am now heard. Um, and even if the validity, so, you know, you um, often have people on that are doing peer reviewed research, which is great because there's kind of a level of validity that peer review process is supposed to give them. However, the paper is peer reviewed, but their conversation of it is not. Correct. Right. Um, and, and all the opinions and opinions can often, especially in these conversations, go very, you know, I'm meticulous in my rights. I'm not as meticulous in the conversation, nor should mm -hmm. I be, but mm -hmm. there's going to be missteps and mis mistakes that happen in that conversation when I'm citing numbers or something like that at, at some point, yeah. right? Um, and and so, so there's that aspect of it. And then the idea, too, about um, the power that we're provided, I don't think we've been, we, I don't know what to do with it either. But I, I think that we have to start by acknowledging it at, at a minimum because the other aspect is, and this came up, uh, one, one PE listener in particular brought this up over and over again, was that the issues in our community is that we have a lack of, we have kind of the podcast that exists. There's no, there hasn't been any new game in town for a little while. Um, and then there's, there's, again, we're self-anointed. And when we have journals, we have editors. They often have a, you know, there's so many, we know that editors have a lot of power over these academic journals. They have a viewpoint, they have a lens, they have things that they, they um, think are more important than others, right? And hopefully in a good journal that's getting rotated every few, and also hopefully there's a board or something that's providing information that, again, we're self-anointed and often we're on an island by ourselves. There's good and bad to all of that too. Um, but the other aspect is, and this came up quite a bit, is that like we don't, we have kind of a lack of diversity in the voices that we provide in this community, as well as in the study I did, all the podcast creators that I interviewed were, and I think I had a very good representation of who's out there, were white, all but one was a man. Um, so almost all, uh, you know, from that viewpoint. And then again, all the guests that they're getting, because they have that, that their network often, Mm -hmm. is from that viewpoint and diversity in that lens diversity in and again what even we think is important um you know like what like you know your area you know a lot like your area of what you think is important is maybe not what everyone else thinks is important yeah um you know i could relate it back i remember i went to one of your peak collaboratives um about uh, the shape standards right and i remember kind of the discussion of the downplaying of motor skills. Yeah. Okay. So maybe a lot of the podcasts that are coming out right now are not heavy on motor skills. Mm -hmm. Well, who's to say that that's not an important topic to yeah. have people on? Yeah. Well, we are <laughs> actually, yeah. but we, but we haven't gotten the, and, and the paper in some ways is me calling myself out. It's me trying to put a little bit of, I think, I don't know what it looks like, what we need to do. But I think there's some level of a transparency that we need and that we are these decision makers at, at a minimum. And then what do we do with that power that we hold? Um, and again, that's, and then talking about it from the community of practice lens, that's not a good community of practice where there's kind of um, these Wizard of Oz figures pulling the strings of what, and I don't think this is a conscious effort on our part. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's something that's just, you know, unintentional and, and um, organic. And often we're professors, we're teachers, we have other things going on, right? This is a yeah. side hustle thing or not, not even really a hustle. I'm not making any money, but uh, <laughs> it's a side uh, hobby for yeah. us, right? And um, so, so how much time can we really put into this, right? But at the other end, um, you know, I know that many of us, uh, one of the researchers or podcast creators that was on there, I think, said they have about 30,000 listeners per month, okay? Um, you know, I'm probably in the mid, whatever, three to 5,000 a month, mm -hmm. okay? Um, that's still a lot of people yeah. that, you know, potentially are listening to us. And they might be listening to us and not engaging in prof other professional development. Um, and, and again... So I, so when I was coming in and talking about our networking and all the, you know, benefits that we gained, 
I think that's great. I benefited tremendously from this endeavor that I've done um, unintentionally that I did really naively. But then we need to acknowledge this power that we have. And that came up in this conversation and in my own self-reflection of it is what I don't have a solution though. I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. And, and I had, after my first full year, I had a really close colleague call me out respectfully for, she's like, look, look at who you've had on your podcast. Like most of them are white scholars. They're this and this. And I, and I took that like I was offended. I was like, I'm not trying to block anybody. Like I'm trying to get everybody on there. But then I looked at it. I'm like, okay, like most of the time when I'm looking at it, I see what comes up either on Twitter or I scroll through like JTPE or PSP like lists and I look at the topic and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Contact the author, ask them to come on, they come on. And since then I've made a much bigger effort to try to include diverse topics and diverse voices. And, um, but honestly, if that one person didn't talk to me about it, I might have not done that for several years. Nobody else has said that after that. And I know that my podcast tilts towards certain topics based on, like, I'm also doing this out of my time. I spend, you know, I put out a podcast every week for the last five years with one summer off. Other than that, every week I put out a podcast. So I want to talk to thing, talk to people and about things that I'm interested in, like, that's why when I saw this paper, I was like, oh, that is something that I want to talk about. And you just happen to be a white guy living in New Hampshire. And so I think that it, it is important for us, though, to listen. And I think, you know, when I read that part about the lack of diversity and the guests and the topics, like I really, it really hit home. And one of the last things in here, and this is when I'm going to I'm going to tell you a secret, uh, you talk about how podcasts can be a one-way mode of communication. And obviously, if somebody is doing a peer-reviewed research paper on podcasts from PSP, they might look to have another person peer review that. So I was the peer reviewer on this paper, which you would have probably guessed, uh, but I pushed back on this and in my notes and all the other comments were really, really nice. But you said, you kind of came to this conclusion that that podcasts were this one-way mode of communication. And I would agree to a certain extent because I ask for feedback on new things at the end of the podcast episode. I'm like, hey, I just talked about this article with no guests. Can you please give me some like feedback? And I'll get like one thing on Twitter or one thing on email. And I ask people to give me feedback and I don't get it. And so I just keep on going and I'm like, oh, I guess people are listening to it because the download numbers are similar. But one way mode of communication is radio, is TV. Like if I watch TV, I'm just getting information. I can yell at the television like sometimes I do when I see something infuriating on there, but they don't reply. Radio, if I'm listening to NPR while I'm drinking my coffee in the morning, that's a one way form of communication. And to a great extent, NPR is a very valid source and a very balanced force, uh, form of information that I go to for kind of the gold standard of if I hear that on NPR, I'm pretty sure it's true. Same as newspapers. Like I can leave a comment on my favorite newspaper on the bottom, but that doesn't necessarily affect what happened in the story. So what's the difference between a podcast and is it bad that it's a one-way form of communication. Because you and I are not gonna put on a radio show and ABC is not gonna put us on on a PE like research chat every Sunday at 11 because it's there's not enough people who care. So I think those are, are good points. And there is a paper uh, that came out, um, Barry was his name, in 2015 and it's called like the golden age of media and it's the podcasting era something along those lines and it talks about podcasts being a new medium mm -hmm. uh, they talk about newspapers they talk about radio television 
and that those have been kind of the consistent things in, for the last 100 years, um, and that podcasting is the, new, the first new form outside of, and I think the internet was part of it too, but it's like the new form of media, and it's how, it, it's a different way that we're outputting information, even though it has a lot of the similarities to those. And again, that goes back to the authenticity and that goes back to the relationship building, the transparency of the host. Um, and so that's one aspect that I think makes it different than those things. I also think that when we, what we're doing is we are not NPR. We are not Joe Rogan. We are not trying to talk to the masses. We're trying to talk to our community. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Right. So we're, we're trying to and, and hopefully we have our, our feet on the ground enough where we can be taking some of those perspectives. You have colleagues that are going to call you out and feel comfortable enough to do that with you. So you're in a community of, of practice right there. Right. Well, this really this one way communication, is it good? Is it bad? Um, I think it's bad. And the research to support this. If we are looking at a podcast as a community of practice. There's been other papers that kind of talk about it as a community practice. And again, we are talking to our niche community. Um, I would like it to be a community of practice. But if community of practice only really works or works well, if there is two-way communication, um, you know, again, it, it, we have to, there, there's, if we are the Wizard of Oz people giving the information out and not getting feedback on what, how to improve it, who to have on, the topics that they want to have on, the guests that, are, that need to be on and represented, um, then I don't think it's going to be as efficient as it could be. You know, and, and so, you know, can it be? I, I don't know. I, you know, to me, again, this is, I, I recently realized that I'm, I'm obsessed with doing novel things. I think, I think, creating podcasts. I want to do not like that's something I want to do. And to me, this paper is very novel. And not, again, um, because I, I'm really interested in the educational podcast kind of world. And I've been interested in it for like five years now. And I'm still looking for collaborators because I, I don't, I can't find anybody that has more than three articles on this, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they've written about this topic. So I say this because this is new. Like this is not, this is not um, a well-established kind of thought. So, should we even look at it as community practice? I'm not sure, but well, I do it, know that it's maybe not existing in the way that it should. Would it make it if a, it is a community practice? Would it make it a community practice if you and I produce a podcast and then there's a group in Chicago, a bunch of teachers who get together? They listen to the podcast on their own and they meet once a month for an hour and a half to discuss the parts of that podcast that relate to their own and they use one of the podcasts as the center point. Then it's not one-way communication anymore because it's one-way communication there, but then the teachers themselves are discussing it. So, you know, I think when I say this community practice, I'm kind of looking at it from this really large global sense of the host and the listeners engaging in this content. But is there smaller, like I said, there's one between the host that seems to be very apparent um, where we have created a community of practice amongst ourselves. That seems very efficient. Um, Can there be other smaller ones within that? Absolutely. Um, However, again, and I think that's great that they're having two-way communication. And, And yes, that's Excellent. Um, again, though, I think in the community of practice, it's, it's developed, there, there should be some, um, you know, and community of practice is this really broad framework, and I really got into the literature around it for this paper. Uh, and so there's kind of these debates about what it is, what it isn't, and what, what what's efficient about them. Um, but what I saw, you know, is, is, you know, there should be some connection to the development of the knowledge and content as well, and, and a really strong one. So. Can there be smaller ones within there? Absolutely. Can they be kind of more efficient because they're critically analyzing it? Absolutely. Um, but you know that again, in my eyes, this paper is somewhat what I was trying to attempt with it outside of the results 
that we found was to, to make a strong statement that, you know, that we, we as hosts have to do our due diligence to kind of get the, the representation of the community that we're trying to provide the voice to. One last thought on that too, though, is that there probably needs to be some responsibility of the listeners as well. Because when you put out a post and say, please give me your comments, and even though there's maybe thousands of people that listen to you, and you only get one comment, um, you know, maybe there, there needs to be a little bit of onus on them as passive, uh, you know, passive learners on that to take a little bit more of an active mm -hmm. role in their, their learning. Well, Scott, thank you. Um, really appreciate you coming on. I think that there's a lot here. I, I agree that, you know, you in in the PE world, um, there isn't a lot of stuff done on podcasts. And I know that you've had some other papers out there that have been published about uh, about podcasting. And, and I know that there's a lot more questions out there than than you have. Uh, written answers for so uh, we do look forward to uh, hearing more about it um, I will link to your podcast as well so uh, for those of you who are interested in adapted physical education and all the other content that they or you've been putting out for years here uh, we'll link to that so um, thank you Scott appreciate it I appreciate it I hope everyone comes and joins my community of practice too all right. Good. All right. And uh, I'd also like to thank Alba Rodriguez for her help in producing the podcast. And that's all we have for you. Thanks. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.